Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Anna Kagarakis, and each week we head down memory lane as I take you back in time and we remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. No need for a flex capacitor. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. We have experienced so many great moments in sports history, but we've also experienced heartbreak. It is through these stories we find the pillar of strength and discover the courage that makes someone a true hero. July 4th not only signifies America's independence and the birth of a nation, it is also the day we remember one of the greatest baseball players to grace the diamond and his own battle that personified his strength and courage. Lou Gehrig is a legend of the game, but his legacy is not defined by the disease that ailed him. He was known for his prowess as a hitter, his durability that earned him the nickname the Iron Horse, and for the strength he showed when the realization hit that he only had a few grains of sand left in the hourglass. But to really understand who he was and what made him tick, I'll talk to sports journalist and attorney Tara Krieger, who wrote a biographical sketch on Lou's wife, Eleanor, the person who loved him and kept his memory alive. But first, we start at the beginning. Henry Louis Gehrig, born June 19, 1903. The son of German immigrant parents, he was born in the Yorkville neighborhood in Manhattan, weighing nearly 14 pounds at birth. Ooh, Mama Gehrig had to be tough. He was the second of four children, but the only one to survive beyond infancy. Lou Gehrig played 17 seasons as the first baseman for the New York Yankees from 1923 to 1939, winning the World Series six times in that span. He made his Major League debut on June 15, 1923 as a pinch hitter, wearing the number four because he hit behind the Sultan of Swat, Babe Ruth, who batted third in the lineup. The Southpaw had a lifetime batting average of 340 and won the Triple Crown in 1934. He was an All-Star seven consecutive times, won the AL Most Valuable Player twice. He had 493 home runs and had 1,995 RBIs. One of his most notable accomplishments was playing in 2,130 consecutive games for the Pinstripes, a streak many thought unbreakable until a player named Cal Ripken came along. That record stood for 56 years. Gehrig's streak ended on May 2, 1939, when he voluntarily took himself out of the lineup in Detroit, a move that stunned his teammates and the fans, but his performance on the field became hampered by amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, an incurable neuromuscular illness that attacks the nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord, now commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. At just 36 years old, the disease forced him to retire from the game he loved. The Yankees honored their captain on the 4th of July on what is now known as Lou Gehrig Day. The ceremony happened between games of a doubleheader against the Washington Senators in front of more than 62,000 fans. The team retired his number 
presented him with numerous gifts, including a fishing rod from his teammates, candlesticks from the New York Giants, a smoking stand from the Riders, and a silver plate from the stadium vendors. Members of the 1927 championship team and his current teammates fanned the field. The fans cheered and shouted, We want Lou! There are speeches from dignitaries, the mayor of New York City, Yankees manager Joe McCarthy, and the Bambino, Babe Ruth. But no speech matched what was baseball's Gettysburg Address. It is considered the most famous speech in baseball history. Now we go back to July 4th, 1939, in front of home plate at Yankee Stadium. Here's sound from the past. First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2,130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium, touched to tears by the tribute, Gehrig made his last public appearance. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Sound courtesy of Major League Baseball. Gehrig spent the rest of the 1939 season in limbo, seeing doctors, traveling to the Mayo Clinic, and hanging around the team as they won yet another World Series championship. Within six months of Gehrig's retirement, he was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The Baseball Writers Association of America unanimously voted to suspend its five-year waiting protocol and presented him as the sole Hall of Fame candidate. Gehrig was the Yankee captain from 1935 until his death on June 2nd, 1941, less than two years after giving that iconic speech. He was the first MLB player to have his uniform number retired by a team. In 1969, he was voted the greatest first baseman of all time by the baseball writers. In 1989, the 50th anniversary of the end of his streak, he was honored with a United States postage stamp. And in 1999, he was the top vote-getter for MLB's all-century team. But there's even more to his story. Stories from his wife Eleanor revealed more about who he was as a person. And for more on Lou Gehrig and his life and legacy... Let's go back in time with Tara Krieger. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Well, now we head back in time with Tara Krieger, sports journalist, baseball aficionado, and more. But Tara, before we start with Lou Gehrig, Let's get to know you a little bit. What's your background and involvement with baseball, and where did your love for the sport come from? Uh, Well, actually, my love for the sport came from history. I was a bit of a history geek when I was in middle school, and I realized that baseball was kind of a safer way, I guess you could say, of exploring history, because politics can be kind of contentious. So I just started reading about baseball, and it was right around the time that 
Cal Ripken was making his run at the streak. It was the perfect time, I guess, to merge history and present. And as it was, I was a Yankee fan. So that's basically how I got into that and got into baseball and yeah, just kept reading and watching the game. After I graduated college, I was a sports writer for Newsday for a couple of years. And then I worked at uh, MLB.com as an editor. I wrote headlines for them uh, for about a year and a half. And then I decided to go to law school because you need something to pay the bills. But on my spare time, I still love to write about baseball. I do some writing for the Society for American Baseball Research. I also am on the board of a charity, Baseball Across America, which helps kids go to college and succeed in their career path. Yeah, I still very much love the game. I follow the game. So so you're basically an attorney by day and a baseball savant by night. Yes, I guess you could say that at this point. I mean, I don't know how you organize your life with that. Being in sports broadcasting all these years, I know how much Mm -hmm. of my time it takes up. I don't know how you're an attorney as well. So, I mean, more kudos to you for everything and how you balance all that. But let's get into Lou Gehrig. Okay. For Sabre, you wrote a biographical sketch on his wife, Eleanor Gehrig. How did that Mm -hmm. project come together? And what's something you learned about the Gehrigs that most people probably don't know about? Well, the project came together... Basically, SABRE, Society for American Baseball Research, they have this project called BioProject where they try to get biographies on everybody, whoever was associated with baseball. So one of the things they started was a baseball spouses project. In addition, they said you can write about a spouse, you can write about a child. So I thought, mm, Eleanor Gehrig, I could totally do that because I had read, uh, she has an autobiography by Luke and I, I'd read that. And just little tidbits in there. And I just, I knew enough that I felt this would be a really compelling story. One of the really sad things I found about Eleanor Gehrig was the fact that they were married for eight years and then he died uh, very young. She was about, I think about 36 or so when she became a widow and she just, she never remarried and she really didn't have too much family. She had a mother, she had a father who was estranged, he was dead at that point. And then she had a, a brother who I don't think married either. And, and that was it. She was basically lonely for 40 something years. And the Yankees were basically her only family. You know, she would go to the every single year, she'd be introduced as the first lady of the Yankees. And she would just show up. And that seemed to be what kept her going, I guess you could say. It was kind of a really sad ending. It's really a tragic and beautiful love story at the same time when yes. you see who they were, Lou and Eleanor. I mean, they were night and day growing up, it seems like, based on what I read. Yeah, yeah, essentially. She was the type of person who seemed like she just loved the highlights. She just loved, she was a bit of a social butterfly. She loved parties. She loved gambling. She skipped school, which was obviously very much in contrast to Lou Gehrig, who apparently didn't miss a day of school, or so the legend goes. I'm not 100% sure if that's true or if that's an embellishment. I believe it writer, from him. But <laughs> yes, it wouldn't surprise me. So yeah, it was very different. And I think she kind of gave him confidence. He was always very shy, very afraid to kind of stand up for what he was worth, You know, especially back in those days with the, the reserve clause that tied you to your team. The teams would get a contract offer at the beginning of the season. He'd always be the first one to sign, and he'd always sign for whatever because he's always just afraid of losing his job. He just wanted to play. And then she pretty much said things like, you know, why don't you hold out for what you're worth? Why don't you park your car in front of the stadium rather than parking far away so that you could stop and then talk to a couple of kids, give them autographs, just play yourself up because she had just this amazing, amazing talent, and he just didn't really take advantage of it as much as he could have. 
So in that respect, she gave him confidence. And that's probably around, see, they got married in 33. Yeah, and he became captain, I think, in 35. So it kind of makes sense in terms of the, the trajectory of his career that he took on this more this leadership role because he probably had more of a stability and was building his own life a little bit. They really did seem to complement each other, and she drove him to be more out there, more confident. He already had the talent behind him, but, I mean, for more than half a century, he held the record for playing the most consecutive games at 2,130. But the day he pulled himself out of the lineup in Detroit was monumental. What happened that day? When did that happen? And how did, how did Eleanor describe what happened? I think it was one of these things that, it's because he wrote a letter to her, I believe it was that night. And he basically says that at that point, he had been declining in playing the spring and then into the first week of the season. It was about a week into the season. It was the first road trip. I think he was thinking, I'm not any help to the team. So he told the manager, Joe McCarthy, take him out. And that night, I believe, he writes a letter to Eleanor Gehrig and it says something like, well, it was inevitable this would happen. But, you know, the whole time I was thinking about you and just whether or not I'd be good for you and breaks my heart that this was weighing on me. And I just thought that was kind of touching that that he writes this letter and, you know, he's not so much thinking about the uncertainty of his career, what's going to happen. But the whole time he's just thinking about his wife. For him to pull himself out of the lineup, that must have been shocking what kind of emotions do you think was felt by the teammates the fans and everyone around them when when that news came out i i just can't imagine i mean the sports writers obviously you know had a field day with it because it's one of these things it's interesting because if you look at the, the the news articles and all the, the press leading up to it everyone says oh it's time for him to go it's time for him to retire I can't play anymore and they kept saying, you know, back then it was kind of viewed that, well, you know, you're working too hard and, you know, maybe the streak was taking his toll on his body and he shouldn't play every day, which is interesting because I think they started to say the same thing about Cal Ripken around the time that he took himself out. But when Lou finally took himself out of the lineup, there was a sudden tribute, like, you know, the Iron Horse is through and people wrote poems. I think someone wrote a poem, if I recall, uh, in the style of, there's this old poem, The One Hoss Shea, which I think it was Longfellow. And it said something like, so endeth Iron Horse Lou, we'll all celebrate him, but Lou is through, or something like that. Like, that's how it ended. Like, huh. people just, they were just, there were so many tributes and so much, almost like love for the fact that, but, you know, at that point, they had no idea. They just thought he was old. Right. Um, they didn't really, you know, there were probably a few articles saying there might be something wrong with him, but no one really knew until he went to the Mayo Clinic after that and they found out he had ALS. Yeah. I do wonder, though, how a story like that would have fared today. You know, you're a sports journalist. You've, you know, you've worked mm-hmm. in media. So how do you think that would have fared in today's social media, 24-hour news cycle? I mean, we already hear all kinds of speculations oh, out there. If something, you yeah. know, if a player is out because, oh, they might be traded or they might be hurt. Right. What would you well, think? Well, first of all, I don't, it's hard to picture because, I mean, I, I don't know the next time a player is going to do something like that. The fact that Ripken did it was, you know, such a big deal in the 90s. And everyone said, well, how could they keep keeping him in? But now you see a manager doesn't, you know, even these people who are supposedly Ironmen, they still, they miss a couple games a year here and there for mm-hmm. random things. So just the idea that somebody's in the lineup every single day, there's no strategic reason to take them out is, you know, it's just kind of baffling for years and years at a time because players are paid so much. 
that you don't want to you know risk your investment by by putting them in some meaningless game late September. So I think in that respect it'd be hard. But if a player got to that, yeah, I mean I think I think you know every single day everyone's wondering about this stuff. You know, you go on Twitter and the amount of hate you can just put in 280 characters about you know how someone's playing or oh he missed this or something. It would just it would definitely be a lot bigger now than especially back then when you know sports writers sports writers were still kind of controlled in the sense that you know they they would say things and they would speculate but so much of the sports writing I guess was rhetoric and it was just so much about sounding good so you weren't necessarily you were kind of going to hold back a little bit you weren't going to publish every juicy tidbit you knew about someone right whereas now there's you know so many rumors and it's bad journalism not to put out everything you know I mean, assuming you fact check it, of course, but so it's definitely, it's definitely very different, I think, in terms of how it would play out. And I think there'd be a lot more negativity a lot more earlier on. Oh, he's hurting the team, which again, also wasn't really as much of an issue in 1939 because the Yankees had just won three straight championships and they were on their way to a fourth. So it was, (laughs) how can you personally hurt the team when you're winning the World Series every year? I know they were the Titans back then. You got the murderer's row going on there. But, you know, you mentioned the Mayo Mm -hmm. Clinic, how he went right after to the Mayo Clinic. And I recently was just watching Pride of the Yankees again. Now, obviously, Hollywood does what it does. There'll be some inaccuracies. They take some creative licenses Mm -hmm. in telling the story. But one of the big changes was actually how Lou Gehrig discovered his condition. How, How did he find out and how much did he actually know about his diagnosis? Well, he went to the Mayo Clinic. And I believe what they told him, as I understand, they ran some tests and Eleanor was in New York at the time. So they were communicating by phone. And I think what happened was, I think the doctor knew what it was, if I recall. They knew it was ALS. So Eleanor read up on ALS and she basically knew it was a death sentence. But she basically made the doctors promise not to tell him what that it was a death sentence. And, you know, back then, unless you had a medical textbook in front of you, you pretty much, whatever the doctor said was what you go by. So they told him, I believe he had a 50-50 chance to live uh, and that they could arrest the disease five or 10 years, maybe. And so I think he writes a letter to her, something to the effect of, yeah, I might need a cane in, in 10 years or something like that. So he calls her up and he says, you know, the doctor has told me what it is. I have a 50-50 chance to live, but, you know, we're going to get through this. And she gets off the phone and she's basically uh, the sports writer, Fred Lieb, who actually was Walter Brennan character in the movie. They give him a different name there, but it was based on him. He and his wife were over at Eleanor's house for this news. Eleanor gets out. She says, I'm going to need a stiff drink because that big buffoon just told me he had a 50-50 chance to live as though he were giving me the weather. So they kind of, there was kind of this false optimism. They kind of kept up. So he comes back. And he takes this letter and the letter says doctors described it as chronic infantile paralysis. And, you know, polio back then, everyone knew what that was. Mm-hmm. ALS is not polio, but people knew what that was. Right. So he comes back from Minnesota. And I think Eleanor basically, she wanted two things. She wanted to basically keep him happy because she knew that he only had a couple years to live. She knew it was just going to get worse. And she basically wanted to make sure that the doctors kept him optimistic. You know, you see all this correspondence going back and forth between him and his doctors. You know, back then, medical professions didn't have to necessarily tell patients the truth. It wasn't necessary. The ethics were different. They could just essentially tell him, you know, yeah, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Try this. Try that. Try every remedy under the sun. He was getting all kinds of experimental vitamin shots. Um, And he just 
you know, he kept saying, you know, it doesn't seem to get any better. Could this work? Could that work? And you could see he's searching for some sort of ray of hope. And at one point, I think Eleanor writes a letter to, I think it was a doctor, and she says, we all need to lie like mad because he just shouldn't know what he's in for. And meanwhile, they're having all these guests over to the house, all these party guests, to a bankhead, to cast, sports writer John Kieran apparently lives in the neighborhood, you know, big name. You know, all that's going on. Meanwhile, you know, he's on decline. And I think at some point he, you know, I mean, I guess, he was nobody's fool. You know, he, at some point he figured out, even though every single letter, he doesn't quite ever get an answer. You can tell that at some point it dawns on him that this is not going to get better. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, you know, we know how it ended. Right. And it's understandable why she would want to protect his mental well-being during that time, because we've seen how terrible ALS is. And so I I completely understand as a wife, it'd be very difficult to face that every day and just try to keep him positive. But now two weeks after Mm -hmm. his 36th birthday, July 4th, 1939, the Iron Horse delivered his luckiest man in the world speech. What do you know about that day, about Lou Gehrig saying his goodbye? Well, I know that he didn't want to do it. Um, I mean, they didn't, first of all, the Yankees didn't have much time to put together, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, now anytime something happens, they arrange a day and it's all scheduled at some point. But, you know, he gets the news actually on his 36th birthday about ALS. He tells the Yankees a couple days later. So that's June 22nd or so when he tells the Yankees. So that's like less than two weeks, basically, to, you know, arrange this giant day and all these dignitaries. So, you know, to bring Fiora LaGuardia and Postmaster General Jim Farley and, you know, all the 27 Yankees, well, maybe not all of them, but most of the 27 Yankees, you know, showed up that day. So it's this, this giant reunion. He doesn't like being the center of attention. So he says something to the point of, you know, I, I do anything to just get me out of here. He doesn't want to do it. You know, he has some remarks prepared, but it's unclear whether or not he memorized them or whether he just kind of spoke from what he knew when he got up there. That's interesting, though, that he, I do wonder if he said that speech, if he had written it down, if he had practiced it, if this Mm -hmm. is just off the cuff. That's something that I guess we'll never know. Yeah, I mean, I think there were versions of it. Unfortunately, no recorded version of the whole speech exists. I believe the official versions they have are just they, they looked at various newspaper accounts and tried to piece together the rest. I don't know whether or not these words he allegedly wrote down, they were available at some point. I kind of doubt it. I have a feeling he probably just had an idea of what he wanted to say and kind of pending up there and said it. I think what really fascinates me about the speech is it's so eloquent and it mm-hmm. sounds like a professional speechwriter wrote it. And, you know, he, he wasn't a professional speechwriter. Um, he just, you know, he got up there and, and talked. When the Yankees who give your right arm, you know, when the Washington Senators who give your right arm to beat them, you know, give you gifts, that's something. When you have you know, a wonderful wife who is the greatest strength I know, you know, when you have these wonderful parents, when you have a wonderful mother-in-law who will stay with you, even with squabble with her own daughter, you know, that's, you know, that's a blessing. Like all these over and over again, this the repeating the parallels. It really sounds like something that someone professionally wrote. So that's always what I think what fascinated me most about it. And it came from one of the most reserved men in the sport, too. So you have somebody like Babe Ruth, who was, you know, loud and boisterous. He was in everyone's face. You knew everything Mm -hmm. about the Bay, but you had Lou Gehrig, who was a little bit more quiet and was more private. So it is kind of eye-opening to see uh, what he said and did seem like he spoke from the heart a lot in that 
So unfortunately, he passed on June 2nd, 1941. A year mm-hmm. later, after he passed, The Pride of the Yankees was released on July 14th, which, which I'm still kind of astounded how fast that actually came in a turnaround here. But what were right. Eleanor's initial thoughts on the film and how it depicted her husband and their lives together? Well, what I found out, I think, after I wrote the biography was just how much control she actually had over the, the Pride of the Yankees. So that's something I actually found out after the fact. But she apparently really was involved with it. She was basically telling, you know, the producers what she wants. She was telling Christy Walsh, who was Lou Gehrig's agent, basically, you know, don't do this. She didn't want Babe Ruth cast because she thought that he'd overshadow, you know, the story. So they actually had settled on a compromise, put Babe in the movie, but only put him in group shots, which actually isn't what happened. But, you know, it clearly wasn't his movie. He was in it enough that you got a feel for who he was. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the movie comes out and she watches it and she basically says, like, wowed by it. She's like, I, what you got, it captured him perfectly. His mannerisms, you know, I just, I didn't want to change it at all. I just, I love the first cut I saw of it. So it was, it was nice that she basically approved of, you know, the film they put out. I mean, it must have been so difficult for her to watch that as, again, I mean, a year after he passed away to kind of relive all those moments on film there. And she was an incredible woman, it seemed like, and everything that she did to keep his legacy alive after his death. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful and sad story, but just seeing how how important he she was to him. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And. Again, I think that his legacy, like the fact that it gave her kind of gave her something to do, basically, you know, promoting his legacy, you know, sort of being that that voice for you know what he might have wanted or being kind of the person who people could go to, you know, to sort of feel connected with him over the years. She gave away some of his memorabilia to people who wanted it to the point where she just apparently didn't have any or had very little of it when she died because she'd given a lot of it away. I guess you got to do something to kind of keep yourself going. And, you know, especially back then when, when women didn't really have much of a career, uh, you know, when her career was basically being Mrs. Lou Gehrig as a professional widow, which, you know, she described herself, which she preferred not to, but that's essentially, I guess, what she was. Although interestingly, she did, she did do a few little things. She worked for um, the AFC, she, she was like the secretary for like an early football league that oh, eventually merged with the NFL for a few years, which she didn't get because she was, you know, she got basically because of who she was, not right. necessarily, but, but yeah, so she had, you know, she had little products here and there. Um, she you know, was always trying to raise money and raise awareness for ALS. And, you know, she pretty much donated her estate to basically ALS research uh, for the most part, because again, like, you know, when she died, she basically didn't have any heirs. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, because they didn't have any children. And all these years, we still don't have a cure for ALS, which is really heartbreaking mm-hmm. out of all of this. But it's referred to, obviously, ALS is referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I remember when they had the ice bucket challenge a few years ago, people were asking what ALS is. But as soon as you told them, oh, it was Lou Gehrig's disease, they knew what it was. How much is yeah. having that disease tied to someone like the Iron Horse actually bring awareness and maybe hopefully will lead us to a cure? Oh my gosh, it gives it gives so much awareness. I mean, I think more people, we found more people are affected with ALS than we used to think. It's not as rare as, you know, either one thought it was or maybe it's getting more prevalent. I, I don't know. But yeah, absolutely. I think it actually has the name of a doctor, Charcot, I believe was his name, attached to it before 
you know, Lou Gehrig. And then, you know, once he got it, all of a sudden, you know, it's this disease no one's ever heard of and no one can even pronounce. So, you know, it goes in the paper. Oh, that's Lou Gehrig's disease. And I think it's one of the few, if any, diseases that's actually named for his victim, which is also interesting. You know, yeah. it's usually it's named for a doctor, someone who discovered it. You know, here are too many that are actually named for their victim. You're right. That I've actually never realized that before, but that that is it. That's what makes it really unique there. So, well, hopefully mm-hmm. we do find a cure for it one day. But before we go, yeah. you know, how did Lou Gehrig become an inspiration for so many? Well, I think it's just the fact that he was, you know, the more you read about him, he basically, he wasn't a saint, but he basically doesn't have anything about him that you could really look and be like, oh, well, he was horrible there. He was just a, like a good person. He pretty much epitomized, you know, if you work hard and you're really good at what you do, You'll succeed. When you talk about, you know, he basically loved his mother and his parents. He would, he did everything he could to provide for them and pull himself up from pretty much a really poor neighborhood and just suddenly make a small fortune that he could actually buy his his family a home. And the thing about Lou Gehrig was also interesting is the fact that he didn't, you know, even though he was very famous in his day, I don't think he quite got his due because he just didn't make for for very good copy. You know, pretty much everything he said was very bland. And you look now and you look at, for instance, I, I compare him to, to, to Derek Jeter today. And Derek Jeter, the press just loved him because he was basically the same type of model. The guy who was just working for the team, the person who was just, you know, a real family man and just seemed like a good person, just everything he, he did. But the press loved Derek Jeter because there were no scandals associated with him because he was just like the, the leader and the, the captain and just very clean cut. You know, you just think of what kind of a missed opportunity it was that you had someone like Lou Gehrig, who was essentially cut from the same cloth, so to speak. And uh, the sports writers kind of, you know, they, they, they didn't take advantage of that as much as they, they would have now. I mean, I kind of think of it, it equates also to Mike Trout with the Angels. And, you know, he's yes. somebody that people are like, oh, I wish he was more out there. I wish he was doing more stuff on social media so everybody can just kind of wrap around him, get him more out there. But he's just who he yeah. is. And he just goes out there, plays ball, and does a great job at it when he's Absolutely. out there. It's hard finding that balance. But Tara, I appreciate everything. This was uh, amazing. A ton of great information on Lou Gehrig, on Eleanor Gehrig, and just really great way to look back into the past. Where can people find some of your work? Uh, well, I mean, you can find most of it on the Sabre website, I think. I think these days are most research Sabre. If you just go to the Society of American Baseball Research, to their, their bio project page, you can find some of my essays. Yeah, I mean, probably if you Google me, I'm sure there's some old articles out there. But thank you very much for, for this opportunity. Um, I really enjoyed this. Good. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. And I will certainly be talking to you soon. So thank you very much for joining yeah. me today. Yes. Yeah. A huge thank you to Tara and make sure to check out her incredible work on Sabre's website by going to sabr.org. You can read the biographical article on Eleanor and read some other interesting projects and stories that she's written. Again, go to Sabre's website, sabr.org. So many great takeaways from that interview. It's heartbreaking looking back on what he had to go through and the tragic love story between him and Eleanor. Married just eight years and she was a widow for nearly 43. One of the most beautiful things that Eleanor said, I would not have traded two minutes of my life with that man for 40 years with another. Something else that Eleanor had shared in her stories is that despite what the disease was doing to his body, after baseball, he worked at the New York Parole Board, counseling those who took a wrong turn in life. Even when it was difficult to sit in his office chair, 
He went to work every day. He never gave up. That was Gehrig. Some interesting little tidbits about the film Pride of the Yankees. First off, the speech was actually changed a bit in the movie. The biggest change being Lou Gehrig in reality started off his speech by saying he considered himself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. In the Hollywood version, the luckiest man line was at the opposite end of the speech. It was the last line in the movie. There were a few other changes, but the film did keep the core and foundation of the message. Pride of the Yankees received 11 Oscar nominations, including Best Actor for Gary Cooper. The funny thing is, Cooper wasn't really sure he was the right person for the role. He felt the honor, but also felt inadequate to play it. I'll say, though, his portrayal of the Yankee legend was incredible. He not only had the striking resemblance to Garrick, but really studied his mannerisms in pictures and even rehearsed with Yankee Hall of Fame catcher Bill Dickey, who actually also played himself in the movie. Cooper even recited the speech on a USO tour during World War II and got standing ovations for his performance. Those words will forever be remembered. One writer said it best, that Eleanor's greatest contribution had to be her tireless efforts to promote and raise awareness for ALS research. Saying, quote, if she couldn't bring Lou back, she could at least attempt to slay the tyrant that killed him. There's still no cure for ALS, but you can help. For more information on the disease itself and how to donate or to support research for finding treatments and hopefully one day finding a cure, go to ALS.org and projectals.org. You know, every year the Lou Gehrig Memorial Award is given to the Major League Baseball player who best exhibits Gehrig's integrity and honor. He was a man who never gave up. And his legacy lives on as he is remembered as the game's greatest first baseman, but also as an American hero. Now, speaking of American heroes, on this day in history... July 4th, 1776, the 13 American colonies claimed their independence from England. And on July 4th, the Continental Congress formally adopted the Declaration of Independence. Though the vote took place on July 2nd, the 4th became the day we celebrate the birth of our country's independence, the formation of the United States of America. So happy Independence Day, everybody. We wish for a brighter future ahead. And that will do it for today. Thank you again for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're available on all your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagaragis, that's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S, and on Instagram at Anna Kags. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagaraikis. We'll talk soon. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. For amber waves of rain For purple mountain Majesties Whoa, whoa.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.